0: Either she homeless or she got problems. That's the only reason why she runs to a black man.
1: I like him already.
0: Now you want to get nuts? Come on! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Producer, director, writer. He is the ultimate filmmaker and bona fide foodie. You're listening to The, the Quintas, Quintas Factor. Factor with Michael J. Arbouet. It's that time again. Hello, my friends. Greetings, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Quidditas Factor. I'm your host, Michael J. Arbourway. That word, Quidditas. Adriana, you know what it means. Please give us the definition.
1: Quidditas. Latin. The whatness of a thing. The essential nature of something. The quality that makes a thing what it is.
0: Yes, absolutely correct. Quidditas is the whatness or essence of a thing or person. And in this episode, I want to talk about faking it until you make it. You've heard that term before. What does it mean to do that? Well, fake it to you make it means that you constantly cultivate an attitude, feeling, or perception of competence that you don't currently have, and you pretend you do until it becomes true. Now, there's a power in believing in yourself, um, but... It's also a disadvantage if you're going to do this and not have any kind of structure to back yourself up. So what I, what I mean by that, like, the three things that you can do to fake into until you make it, you act as if. Number one, act as if you know what you're doing, um, but you can only do that so far. Act as if you know what you're doing, but then go and do the research and make it happen and make it true. That's one way you can do it. Another thing that people do is they kind of nod and smile. You know, a lot of people will nod and smile and say, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but they don't have a clue as to what's going on. And again, it's okay to do that in the moment, but then go back, do the research, and figure out what's going on. Knowledge is power, so you have to do that. And the third thing to do um, when you're trying to fake it as you make it is to pretend that everything is fine. Now, there's a advantage to this, and there's a disadvantage to this. You know, If you pretend everything's fine, you're not going to be stressed out and weighed down on the problems that are currently attacking you, but if you do this too long, it's going to take over and it's not going to be real. For an example, one of my mentors, Tony Robbins, always says, you can't stand in the middle of a garden and say, there's no weeds, there's no weeds, and let the weeds take over your garden. The weeds are going to take over your garden. But if you don't stress about your garden and you do some weeding a little bit every day... Your garden will be fine. And I think that's what it means to fake it until you make it. You basically are assuming or letting people think you know something and then later on getting that experience. And that's exactly what my next guest has done. You know, it's so crazy. He's got an amazing story. And his story is so amazing that he's coming out with a book sometime in the near future. But, you know, find out, and you have to listen to the end of this episode, find out how he used a technique to pick up girls, which ended up getting him the dream job that he has right now. And he is 72 years young. I mean, this guy is still going strong, and he's just amazing. You know, what's really interesting about this story is that my next guest started that as an actor, and he started out in a film that is now famous, and it's a cult classic. Now, just to give you an example, this film was the directorial debut of of Wes Craven. Now, you know Wes Craven from, you know, The Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, but his very first film was The Last House on the Left. And my next guest was an actor and starred in that movie. And now 50 years later, that movie kind of unleashed all the other horror films that you're used to seeing today. It's an amazing piece of work. It still holds up. And the story is so great. So if you want to hear an amazing story by an amazing individual, you will listen up until the very end so it's without any further ado I introduce my guest Mark Sheffler. Hey Mark, how you doing? Hi man, nice to meet you. The pleasure is all mine, believe me. You know Mark, I just have to tell you that, you know, I went to film school in the late 80s and graduated in the early 90s, but the the movie The Last House on the Left was part of my childhood growing up in the 70s and 80s and I, it's just an absolute pleasure just to meet you. I didn't, never got a chance to meet Wes Craven, you know, he passed, but um, You're like part of my childhood.
1: Okay. So that's a kind of legacy thing, what you just said. Because um, when I was a teenager, young teenager, there were certain TV shows that I was extremely fond of. One of which was the Dick Van Dyke show. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, for some reason, I used to, well, I knew why I'd watch all the credits. Because first of all, the whole premise of that show woke my ass up to like, wow, there's a job for that. <laughs> you can, you could actually, that's a real job, right? So um, I, I, I sort of keyed in on a, a writer, two writers, but one guy in particular, that a lot of episodes of that show were written by a team, uh, uh, Bill Persky and Sam Denhoff. And I became a fan of them and for, I had, and I, this is weird. I had some kind of weird connection to the name Sam Denoff, right? Mm-hmm. So cut to like, I don't know how many years later, maybe 20 years later. Well, let me see. I was 14. Okay. So like say 15 years later, 14 years later, I get a, I'm now in Hollywood and I'm working and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a real professional comedy writer. I get a call from an executive at NBC who I was doing a lot of business with who said to me, Hey, do you know who Sam Danoff is? (laughs) And and I said, yeah. And he said, well, I was talking to him about you. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, look, if you're available, I want to put you guys together. I've set a lunch next week. You in? And I I just, yeah. So anyway, I went and Sam, we ended up becoming partners. We ended up becoming writing producing partners and so so when you said what you said, you know it it kind of like took me right back to that moment in my life when I fixated on something as a kid and then years later there it is in real life. I've had I've had lots of that.
0: You know, and that's what's so amazing about your story. You know, a, a couple episodes ago I interviewed Chong Young and we were talking about kismet and being in the right place at the right time. And you have these moments throughout your entire career that's just going to make people jump up and scream. Um, but before we get to those stories, because they're just so amazing, let's go back. Let's go way, way back. Just be really, really ridiculous here. And let's just say when you were eight or nine years old, let's go as far as back as that. What was the dream back then? You know, did you want to be an actor? Like, what did you want to do when you grew up?
1: Well, when I was 10 years old, let's start there. Mm hmm. As I approached my 10th birthday, my father said to me, my father was this very out of the box, aluminum siding salesman, right? He was, and I was a single parent, right? So, so I was being raised by, by somebody who, you know, lived by his, basically his own rules and, and uh, we're coming, I was coming up on my 10th birthday and my dad said to me, Hey, listen, man, uh, uh, 10 years old, big day, double decade, you know, double digits, new decade. Let me get you something really special for your birthday. What do you want? So, you know, I just fucking knee jerked the re- response. I said, uh, I- I get me the Three Stooges.
0: <laughs>
1: a- and he said, okay. He said, I can't promise you that I'll get them, but I can promise you I'll find out. Turns out the Three Stooges were doing a two-week gig at a club called the Holiday House in Pittsburgh, where I live. Uh, um, and my dad said, look, it's a little after your birthday. But if you want this, I'll make it happen for you. So he hired them to perform. He, he, he got a, a, a deal, made a deal with them to perform at a birthday party on a Saturday afternoon. They did a matinee show for us. And in the middle of the show, Mo stops the show, looks out at the audience and says, hey, we're here to celebrate Mark's 10th birthday. Where is Mark? So I raised my hand and Mo said, come on up on the stage with us. And I was like shocked. And my father leaned over and says, get your ass up on that stage. <laughs> and so I went up on the stage. I knew all their stuff, right? I knew I, I knew I was a huge Three Stooges fan. And I started interacting with them. So I don't know how many minutes later, you know, my memory of that is, is kind of foggy. But after a, a short period of time, Mo stopped the show again and put his hands on my head and said, I w the fourth Stooge." And like 60 people who were there, these friends and their family and people who couldn't believe that somebody hired the Three Stooges for their kid, they were like applauded and laughed and hugged. So there I am, 10 years old, on the stage, holding a microphone. Eyes can't see anything because stage lights are in my eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And when the applause and the laughter for that started, I felt this warm thing, right? This, this, Ooh, this feels good. (laughs) And that, you know, looking back, I'm writing a book right now about my life and it, it, and looking back, I would have to say, that's the day the switch went on. That's the day when I said, you know what, this is where I want to be. This is where I belong. This is where I feel at home. And this is where I want to be. So I think that's the answer
0: to your question, Mark. Wow. That is an amazing story. That is just so cool. So I'm assuming that you got bit with the bug back then. I'm assuming you studied theater in high school.
1: Yeah, I, w- I was, um, well, I was always into class clowning, right? Like that, that was, you know, and, um, I got thrown out of public school in the ninth grade because as I remember, the the, the uh, guidance counselor said to my father, your son has the ability to take over the class at will. And we just can't have that because <laughs> <laughs> I would just do something really funny and they'd laugh and the teacher couldn't get the class back. It was, you know, you know, I I guess I guess it wasn't good, but I enjoyed it. So that, then I went to a private school uh, that was for kids like me you know who came from uh families who had some disposable income whose manner wasn't bad you know wasn't criminal wasn't but it was on it was on the weird side and they just like one of my classmates in this private school that i went to was a guy named nathan Shulhoff. and i don't know if you know nathan's name nathan's a guy who uh, uh co-invented the mp3 player oh wow so, yeah <laughs> yeah we're still friends we you know we're, we're still good friends Uh, So there were several of those kind of kids in, in that school. So then I went to, I went there for two years and then my dad built a house in the suburbs. And I ended up graduating from uh, a place called Upper St. Clair High School outside of Pittsburgh. And again, I, you know, I I kind of have been walking my own road my whole life. I got that from my dad, Mm -hmm. you know. I got that that thing from my dad of, of that that your own road can exist. And, and that it, it, once you discover it, you have kind of an obligation to yourself to walk it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then I, I joined the Pittsburgh Playhouse. You're talking about theater. I joined the Pittsburgh Playhouse. I think when I was uh, 19, I went to college at LSU for like a year and a half and then dropped out. I couldn't take it. You know, I just I just couldn't fucking take it. <laughs> and um, uh, went to school with David Duke. Actually, uh, that's that's. I mean, I actually went to school with him. I used to debate him uh, in this place called Free Speech Alley. So I joined the Pittsburgh Playhouse for a while and got some experience, and then uh, moved to New York. You know, uh, I was going to move to California, but my father, um, whose advice I took mostly, uh, said no, go to New York you know, there's stuff that you'll need to know when you get to California. He told me two things. He told me that one. And then he told me, he said, look, California is a strange place. I've been there. And uh, um, if you're meant to go there, one of these days, it'll reach out and grab you and pull you toward it. He said, don't go there, you know, like a schmuck with like 8 million other people with your dick in your hand. He said, just wait it out. Go to New York, learn some shit. So I ended up going to New York. And went to the Catskill Mountains and got a job, uh, bullshitted my way into a, into a job of the stage manager at a place called the Raleigh Hotel, which was one of those old, like, uh, gigantic Catskill Mountain resorts. And they had a 1,500-seat nightclub. And just by luck, I got hired just for a weekend on the athletic staff because, once again, I was able to convince someone that I had some athletic ability and, um, and that I could impart it to these old Jewish guests. Right. So so um, there I was. And I hear that the stage manager who they hired for the season took another job and they were jammed. So I went to the general manager and I said, hey, I can do this. He said, what do you mean? I said, I I, drama major in college. You know, we had to learn lights part of the I lied. I mean, I was a drama major, but, you know, I didn't know anything. (laughs) But I turned I, I taught myself in one afternoon what to do. And they ended up keeping me. So I stayed there for a little under a year saw every comedian like who worked that circuit from stars to nobodies more than one time and became friendly with one of them by the name of London Lee. Uh, London Lee was a guy who uh, his ass, his whole act was based on his life that he was the son. He was like a, a Jewish Donald Trump Jr. If he was not an idiot, this guy, London, but he came from that kind of family, right? Mm-hmm. Dress, dress, fabrics, dressmaking uh, family. So I worked with him. He, I, what happened was I, he offered me a job. Uh, his, his road manager was leaving. And about a year after I've been at the Raleigh, he said, Hey, look, you know, I know what you want to do with your life. We've talked a lot. I have this job available. See what happens. So I took the job, left the Raleigh, moved down to the city, worked with London for a little under a year, starting as his driver, schlepper, errand runner, you know, assistant. Then I wrote some jokes for him that worked. And then he let me do a bit in his act that he did with his other guy. And then that worked. And then and then one night he wasn't feeling well. And he said to me, uh, we we would do this bit where I'd come out on it. He'd say in the middle of his act, uh, I'm a little thirsty. Can I get some water? And he'd look to the wings and say, Mark, Mark, could you bring me some water? So I'd come out with a glass of cold water. And on my cross, he'd look at the audience and say, that's Mark. My father got him for me. And they'd laugh at that, right? And I'd give him the water. And we'd do this bit where he'd say to me, who am I? I said, well, you're the boss. Well, who are you? Me? I'm nothing. Yeah, well, what does that make me? Makes you the boss over nothing audience with you know it's a vaudeville kind of a, <laughs> kind of a joke so we we'd done that for a couple of months and he was very comfortable with me doing it one night at a, I think it was either the Nevely or Cutchers, it was a giant club like the Raleigh well over a thousand people uh, we do the bit and I turn to go and he whispers to me hey come here and I said what and he said, now the audience is like, what the fuck is going on? He said, I don't feel well. I got to maybe coming down with something. Do you think you could do five minutes so I could get a little rest? I said, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I shit in my pants and was like really excited at the same time. So he introduced me. This is Mark. He works for me. He's a young comedian, comedy writer. He's very funny. Give him a big round of applause. So he set me up, keeping me up beautifully. And I went down. I did you know, like five minutes. I don't know, five, six minutes. And I hear behind me all right, get the fuck off the stage, you know? So I, 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 I did it we're driving back. I'm driving the car and I'm like, you know, driving the car, but I'm like miles up in the air. And, uh, um, I said, uh, he always said to me, you know, we're not going to do this every night. And I thought to myself, yeah, this is just like when I had sex for the first time, you know, the girl said to me, I'm not going to do this every time I say, yeah, I just want to do it once. I just want to get it over with. So, um, (laughs) That, so I started doing that and uh, I stayed with London until we did the Copa Cabana. Uh, and after the Copa, I went out. I just left on my own. I got a manager. And then shortly after that, I got Last House. Uh, and, you know, I was off and running.
0: Wow. Now, this is an amazing story to me because 50 years ago, unknown filmmakers. Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham make Last House on the Left. It was the first thing that they did. And this is the first time you're acting in a major feature film. How did you get that job? So I had a manager. I was I was managed by this. It's all weird. I,
1: I, I The title of my book is uh, As Luck Would Have It, the story of me and my very successful, mediocre career. Right. So, so because I've been... I have been extraordinarily lucky on many, in, in many areas, in many levels of my life. And, and what I'm about to tell you, and as we further on, you'll see, you're going to think, wow, this fucking guy's lucky. Wow. what? Because, no. So I had a manager. I forget. I don't even remember how I met this guy. But he, he worked in the office of Lloyd Greenfield and Associates at Rockefeller Center. They represented, at the time, Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck together. Right. They were managed together and uh, they they were very well. You know, they were they carried a lot of weight, that company. And they had a division for actors and comedians and whatever. And that division was uh, headed up by a guy named uh, Dick Towers. Dick Towers was my manager. I walked into his office one day and he was very theatrical. He was very Broadway. He says, hello, Mark. Nice to see you. Nice to see you today. And I said, what's going on? I said, I have a movie for you. And he gave me a piece of paper and he said, go down to this address, go into this office, ask for two guys. One's named Wes, the other guy's named Sean. Tell them I sent you and you're to read for the role of junior. He said, OK. So I go down to the address uh, off of Sixth Avenue. And uh, I think it was the 50s, somewhere in the lower 50s. And I uh, go in. I meet two guys. One's named Wes, tall, skinny, blonde guy with long hair, uh, blue jeans, and a t-shirt. Another guy with a regular shirt on, little chubby short with a mustache. Name is Sean. And they gave me uh, pages to read. I read the pages. They said, thank you. I said, thank you. I went back to Dick's office. And by the time I had gotten back to Dick's office, Sean had called and said, you know, that's our junior. And it was, you know, of course, Sean Cunningham and Wes Craven. So that's so, how I got Last
0: House. Well, it's crazy. You know, some people look back on that film and they think it was a low budget, you know, horror film. But in actuality, it was really groundbreaking uh what Wes Craven and you guys did, and even you as an actor. Uh tell me about that experience, just working for the first time on this film with Wes Craven, Sean Cunningham and, and you on the set. Uh what was that like?
1: First of all, I, I learned uh in that four weeks in Connecticut the fundamentals of everything I, I know about production. Like, I know a lot more, obviously, but the basic bare bones, the foundation, I learned in that experience. And we were all learning. I mean, the only person who had made, Sean had made one sort of semi-documentary called Together before this. West was just editing. He would never shot a movie before, written a movie. The only one who actually knew what production was like from our, you know, the the above the line side was Freddie, Fred Lincoln, because Freddie was a big porn guy. And, you know, even though it's porn, the process is the same, you know, cameras and lights and sound, it's all the same. So Freddie had more experience than than anyone else. It was just great, man. I just, you know, you know, like 20 years old, I'm I'm making a movie, you know, how, how do you like, how does that not be a great, you know, be a great experience? It's just fun. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing but the, wow, look, look at the fuck I'm doing here. You know?
0: <laughs> so the movie wraps and then eventually the movie comes out in theaters. Did people recognize you as that guy from last house on the left?
1: Yes. What happened was, um, last house was originally made to be part of a double feature, like on a weekend, scary date night for drive-ins. By a company, by the company who funded it, uh, Hallmark Releasing, they owned uh, a slew of drive-ins in New England, and they did some kind of calculus that if they made a movie for X amount of dollars, uh, um, and they showed it in their theaters, and they just put it in their theaters, they could recoup their negative cost over. You know, they were guaranteed because they had a built-in audience so who would come and just see whatever they put on the screens right so um, that's what that's how what the film was made for you know uh, that that was its marketing that that was its uh, uh, supposed home so then what happened the film comes out and it's doing that right it's it's performing in drive-ins it's doing what the hallmark wanted it to do and then like i'm i'm trying to see the maybe 2 months Month and a half after it it does this drive-in thing, Roger Ebert writes a fucking uh, three and a half out of four star review of the film. And literally overnight things change. Like no more drive-ins, no more shitty little, you know, movie houses. Suddenly, Sean Cunningham gets an order for like, I don't know, 80,0 prints. To, because it's it's completely going wide right uh-huh. and it did and for two weeks it was a top 10 movie in the united states in that time like it you know it caught fire because of roger ebert's review and that's at the point where where your question uh, uh comes into play it was after that that people started to recognize mostly they would recognize david hess because he's so identifiable right you know he's so physical but they would very quickly recognize that it, Hess and I were together. And because we, we were living together after the movie we we shared an apartment. So uh, um, yeah, that that's quite a transition.
0: You know, it's funny, Mark, I have to tell you a quick story. Uh, the way that I saw Last House on the Left, it was by pure luck, you know, um, I went to film school. And, you know, after a while being in film school, we would hang out in the department. And we would go into the mini theater and we'd show movies that we liked. So, you know, while the kids are hanging out and partying on campus, we would, you know, go to the theater and just pull up old movies that we liked and try to break them down and try to figure out how these filmmakers did this. And so it's a real treat to kind of talk to you about this, because one of the movies that we watched was Last House on the Left.
1: When I saw the an answer print, I I was at a screening at a, a Filmway's. A uh, post facility on the west side. They had a cast uh, crew screening. Sean had one, and uh, David, Freddie, and I walked out of the screening room, and we looked at each other, and we said, "Look, it was really great meeting you guys, you know, because we're going to be friends for a long time." And we were, said, but no one's ever going to come and see this, right? <laughs> just, no, just no one's ever going to fucking come and see it. And then, you know, Roger Ebert thing happened, and then it took on another life. So. I, I don't want to say that, that I disrespected it, but I didn't fully understand. It took me years. I know this sounds stupid, right? But it took me years to completely or, or to come to an understanding of what the film is, you know? And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I, figured, that I actually had a handle on what it was really about, you know? And, and to me, uh, the dinner scene in Last House is the scene that reveals what the film is really about. And if if you remember West kept going back and forth between the Collingwood's and Krug's guys, but he would shoot their clothes, he would he would shoot the way they were holding forks. He 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 was showing that this was really about class warfare and that the root of Krug's anger wasn't so much that he was a criminal like we came to under like we, we sort of understand criminals but he was you know uh, uh, a sociopath powered by by you know class anxiety
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and that went, once i realized that i said oh shit this is you know and you know i don't know if you know this but but the museum of where are you located
0: i'm on long island in new york
1: okay so the museum of modern art uh, last week or 10 days ago, uh, did an, uh, uh, an exhibit uh, uh, on films that evoke a visceral response in human beings, right? And a, it was like, you know, I felt like the, uh, the old Casablanca thing, you know, like of all the gin, you know, of all the gin joints in all the world, she had to walk into mine. Like, like of all the thousands and thousands of horror films and slasher films that have been made since, you know, in, in, in the last 50, 60 years, they picked last house to screen as part of their exhibition wow. so it like fucking blew me away <laughs> like like wait a second i'm at the museum of modern art it's like like i'm art now i'm part of art <laughs> you know wow Man. that's amazing that's nobody <laughs> so uh, uh so i i i and i and then I do a lot of horror film conventions, you know, uh, mm-hmm. every now and it goes in spurts and over the years I've learned as much as I thought I knew about the film, I've learned as much or more listening to what it means to fans and listening to people for, for whom this film is a major moment in their life, wow. which again is a mind fuck, <laughs>
0: right? Well, you no, know,
1: because I, I'm, I basically am not a very serious person, you know, um, I'm just not, I, I, the, the, a lot of the conflicts that I have with my wife and is that I, that I don't take things seriously. It's a character flaw. I know I have it right. I get it, but it keeps me light, you know, and. It keeps me light at 72. It doesn't weigh me down with, with uh, you know, heavy shit. So I came to grips with what this film was about. And, and uh, now, you know, now I'm kind of really proud of the fact that I was part of it and that, and that you know, I was given this opportunity. I am eternally grateful to Wes and Sean for, for, for this, you know, for, for having this opportunity.
0: You know, Mark, this is really interesting because you could have gone on to do 20, 30 more horror films. I just did my horror special. Uh, last week's episode, I had uh, Christina Cleve on from Rob Zombie's Halloween and Tina Krause, who's like the scream queen of B-reated horror, as well as Joe Zazo. But you didn't do that. Uh, you went in a completely different direction and you became a writer. And the way that you did this is such an interesting story. Can you tell me and the audience how that happened?
1: All right. So here's what happened last house on the left came out and um women were throwing themselves at me i just had to appear places right and and like you know go to openings and there was always somebody and it was fucking great you know and i'm thinking to myself all right this is a good career choice i'm happy i had three goals right when i left when i left college i dropped out of college i told you so my three life goals were I want to smoke as much weed as possible. (laughs) I want to sleep with as many different women as possible. And I want to make just enough money to afford the weed and the women. (laughs) I was in a perfect place. I had all, I I had achieved that, right? I was right there. And then it last house disappeared. And so did that. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was like forlorn, man. I was like lost. I I had lost my mojo, right? I didn't have that, you know. I was I was back to being just another out of work actor in New York. Mm-hmm. So one night, as I was at a party, and I see a guy, you know, kind of looks like me, no different, really, not not nothing special, sitting next to a beautiful, fucking, gorgeous model, just a woman that you'd you just think is the uh, like a magazine cover right there. And she is hypnotized by what he's saying. So I kind of edged myself over and I hear him say things like, yeah, well, I was talking to my agent out on the coast and I, I have this draft. I've, I'm, I'm, I've got to like, get through the second act, but you know, I've got everything plotted out and uh, I know who my characters are and I got to deliver this and I'm, a, I'm I'll, I'll do one or two. Dr- and, he's, and she's like, wow, wrapped up. So I thought to myself, I could do that. <laughs> I could tell girls I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. So, so I went out and I bought a bunch of books on writing, screenplays and television play, you know, teleplays. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of skimmed through them, picked up the jargon and, you know, started working it, go around bars, parties, wherever I was. If there was somebody I was interested in, I, that's who I was. I was a writer. I had a plot. I had narrative. I had uh, subtext. I had all the words. So, again, it, it was working. It, it You know, I was, I was acting the part of a writer, I guess. So, <laughs> one afternoon, I was in uh, uh, a reception area of a commercial production house owned by N. Lee Lacey. I'll tell you who N. Lee Lacey is. He's a television commercial director, retired now. But remember, remember that very famous mean Joe, mean Joe Green Coca-Cola commercial?
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Okay, he's the guy who directed that. So so and and I had worked for him a couple of times. I had done a couple of commercials for him. So he knew me and he liked me. We had like a nice rapport. So I'm in his office to audition for something, and I'm talking to a girl, an actress, and I'm working my thing, and uh, she's wrapped up and, and ready to go. And there's a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around and it's Lee. And he said, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, What? And he said, I love what you just said. I want to read that when you're finished. He said, I have an agent at William Morris. Stan Kamen at William Morris in Los Angeles. As soon as you're finished with that, send it to me and I'll send it to him. So I looked at him. I said, look, we're friends and you've employed me. And I feel a, a man, a bro thing, to be honest with you. He I'm not writing anything. He said, what? I said, yeah, man, I'm just using that for girls. And he said, does it work? I said, Oh yeah, all the time. He said, then, and, and don't get mad at me for saying this. You're a fucking idiot. And, and I said, what are you talking about? He said, Mark, if you can get women to drop their pants for things they, you know, they think you're writing, imagine what your life would like, be like, if you actually wrote something. <laughs> And I looked at him and I know I said this. I said, yeah, I really never looked at it that way. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's enlightening. So I don't know how long it took me. It took me, I don't know, five, six months because I was plodding my way through. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Right. So eventually I got a draft finish of the, of the movie. I sent it to him. And about a month later, he called me up and said, well, looks like you're moving to Los Angeles. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, Stan came and uh, gave that to the TV department and they just sold it to NBC. So you got to be there like next week. Wow. So when I landed, again, as luck would have it, right? When I landed in Los Angeles, the day I landed to move from back East to California, I had a car, I had an apartment, I had money in the bank. I had just sold my first, the first script that I ever wrote. And I had William Morris as an agent.
0: You're not kidding. If luck would have it. And what was the name of that project?
1: It was called The Unseen. And it was about a bunch of poisonous snakes that get loose in New York City in Central Park uh, on a summer afternoon. And it was like all set to go into production. NBC changed regimes and it got shit canned. I got paid a lot of money, but, you know, it never happened. But that's. That was my introduction
0: to television. That's crazy. And that kind of thing happens all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, you have to get paid because of the Writers Guild. That's how I joined the Writers Guild was because of this project. So, so yeah. And, and especially when, when there are regi- regime changes, because the new people coming in are being brought in because whatever the old people were doing wasn't working. And everybody wants their own imprimatur on, on their stuff. They don't want to do stuff left over from other administrations. So that's that's why. But it, you know, I, I my my dad said to me, are you upset about it that it's not getting made? And I said, well, I guess, yeah, in some senses, but here, you know, car a part, a house, uh, now i yeah, that then I shortly after that I got a house, house, car, agent, money in the bank in LA, not struggling. So I don't really have much to complain about.
0: (laughs) Wow. That is absolutely insane. You know, I have a whole bunch of friends who are struggling, including myself trying to make it an industry and things seem just to fall in your lap.
1: And that my whole life's been my whole life for the most part uh, 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 has been like that. You know, it's, it's just weird. It's I, I mean, as I, as I go through the book and I go through the years and the, you know, how, how it's working out. Um, and, and I look back, I've just had a lot of things fall into place right when they needed to. It's not like I haven't had shitty times. Of course I have, but the overall, you know, or the overarching narrative is I've been very lucky.
0: So now you're in LA, you've got the house, you've got the power agent, and you must have the girls. Tell me about that first paying job that you said, Oh yeah, I'm a writer.
1: Uh, the first thing I, I I'm trying to remember. I think the first. I don't know if it was a Sanford that I wrote for for um, NBC, or it was the Bugs Bunny thing at CBS. I think it was the Sanford. What? No, wait. That's a good question. I have to. I'd have. So I got two jobs, like kind of close to each other. One was writing an episode of Sanford for Red Fox, mm-hmm. okay, for NBC. And the other was I wrote how Bugs Bunny Won the West for CBS. <laughs> and both of those jobs happened fairly close to each other. And um, you know, one of them was of course work, you know, the Sanford was working for Norman Lear's company, which was a dream of mine. And uh, the second thing was working, doing something at Warner Brothers uh, with with Bugs Bunny, which was also kind of a dream of mine. So this was a I'm I'm living proof that dreams come true. You know, <laughs> wow. you just have to aim yourself there. But you know, I I I, if I could do it. A lot of people can do it.
0: Yeah, wow! you really embody the whole uh, idea of my show, The Quidditch Factor, because I'm always looking for that special something that makes you you, and you have that special magic that you're able to do all these cool things. And uh, what's really interesting is that you also worked on The Love Boat, which I don't know if you know or not, they're turning that into a reality series. And you also worked on one of my favorite shows growing up in the 80s, Charles in Charge. Uh, Tell me in, in the audience a little bit about how you got that job.
1: I, w- I was friends uh, with a guy named Lee Aronson who who started doing stand-up too. Lee is a co-creator of Two and a Half Men, okay? So Lee Lee's, uh, uh, was a story editor on Love Boat. He's the one who actually got me the Love Boat. And, and they, I, I was offered a staff job, but I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I did, that's not what I wanted to do. So um, I did, I did uh, that show and then a uh, few years later, Lee and I decided to start writing together. And he knew Bill Greer, who was the executive producer of uh, Charles in Charge. So he called Bill up and he said, hey, I have a new p- partner. And uh, uh, Bill said, yeah, sure. Just, you know, this he, he sent Lee some stuff. And uh, this is how we like our pitches. And this is that he gave, you know, so Lee and I got together. And we created like five, they're called springboards, right? That you go in and, and talk to about. And Charles, Charles in Charge, the executive producer, Al Burton, had a rule. And his rule was if your pitch didn't begin with the word Charles, he didn't want to hear it, which is great guidance. You know, it just, it just fucking tells you exactly what you have to do. So we ended up pitching five, got one. Bill gave us one right in the room. So we started working on that. We delivered that one. Then they asked us if we'd not write another one. We wrote another one. And then shortly after we delivered the first draft of the second one, they asked us if we wanted to go to work on the show. So we stayed on that show for about six months, I think. Mm -hmm. I know it was enough for us to write 10 episodes. And um, then... We were offered the job of producing a series in New York, starring some new guy named Jason Alexander, okay. and uh, uh, we went to New York. We were able to get out of our Universal contract and then became immediately under contract at Columbia, and then went to New York and produced uh, a few episodes of a show that Jason had called uh, Everything's Relative, and. Oh. Then the writer's guild strike happened. Lee and I split up and you know, that's that.
0: Wow. Yeah. The writer's strike really messed everybody up, you know, and so many shows got canceled and then we got inundated with all these reality shows, which I can't stand. Um, but to go off topic a little bit, um, how did you meet your wife? Because I know working in this industry, it's very hard to meet somebody and, and, and especially when you're working as a writer or a director. Um, they don't like the Hollywood lifestyle. So um, if, you, if I'm not getting too personal, uh, tell me about how you met your wife.
1: Okay, so th- it's not the same wife I have now. Okay. Okay, but I'll tell you how I met my first wife. Okay. Um, my sister uh, 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 at the time, my, my uh, sister who is one of my two sisters, the one who's three years younger than I am, was living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And she, her husband owned, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you who her husband was. Remember Crazy Eddie, the electronics guy?
0: Oh, yeah. He's big okay. in New York. Yeah.
1: Okay. So my brother-in-law was a Crazy Eddie of Louisiana. Same exact, just transplanted. Only he's not, a, you know, he's not going to go to jail. Uh, <laughs> and Eddie Anwar did. So, But they were cousins. They were like uh, cousins. Okay. okay. So he had a store called New Generation. And one day I was in New Generation and I saw this cute little girl uh, working in the microwave department. And, you know, one thing led to another and we started seeing each other. And then eventually she moved to California and that's how I met my first wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a lot more tolerant of my work than my second wife. (laughs) I'm now married to a Colombian woman who... um, absolutely adores the fact that I'm a writer and fucking hates it when I write. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I've been mad. Both women in my, the, 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 both of those two women in my life are just one. I'm still very close with my ex-wife. We have three children and uh, we're still very close. And I, I I prefer to be friends with everybody.
0: Wow. It's funny. I'm sure some of the people listening in are thinking, can this guy's life be any better? (laughs) So what are you working on now?
1: Well, um I am in a movie that is opening in London on the twenty-ninth of this month called uh, the once in future smash. It's kind of like um spinal tap for horror films. Okay. <laughs> okay. It opens up on the twenty it's opening up at Fright Fest in mm-hmm. London. Mm-hmm. And then I guess you know it'll it'll follow around here. I mean uh in in the states uh and i'm writing my book and that's it i you know i do a little stand up every now and then when when the urge to be the center of attention overwhelms me uh and uh, you know other than that i do whatever my wife tells says i just you know <laughs>
0: Yeah. So now we're at the part of the show where I like to ask these really strange and interesting questions. And as you know, we're on the quiditas factor and quidditas means the whatness or essence of a thing or person, but to make it easier on you and the people listening at home, what have I just told you that quiditas means magic power or superpower? What is your magic or superpower Mark? What is your quiditas?
1: Oh, to disarm people by making them laugh. <laughs> I don't even have to think about that. I, I've, I wrote, I, I, I don't say this about myself. I say this about, you know, when I was writing my book, I I've been able to bend people's wills, like a spoon in Yuri Geller's hand with my, with that. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, when my wife and I are, are like, you know, having words, let's just say, right. Mm -hmm. She, um. she's, is in the conversation, but she's always looking out for that punchline I'm about to drop because she knows that that's my out card, right? That's what I'll use if I think if I think it isn't going well. I'll really look for a joke, and, I, and that's not a good thing to do. I've learned in relationships, you know. There, there are times when you have to get serious, and it's a big struggle for me.
0: Uh, here's a question for you. Uh, tell me something that people seem to misunderstand about you.
1: I don't think people. I don't know about misunderstand. I don't, I don't think a lot of, cause n- nobody really talks about it. The biggest joy I have had in my life, I think, um, is being a father. Mm-hmm. I, I approached fa- being a father, um, with a certain point of view. And now I look at my three grown children and the, I, I, the relationships I have with all three of them. And I think to myself, well, I got something right (laughs) you know so yeah and i I, you know I, i i kind of don't mind people not talking about it but it's i think i i don't know i guess i guess that would be it
0: i know exactly how you feel uh i just turned 51 and i just sent my oldest uh daughter to vassar college and I feel a little empty. I feel weird because you know I don't expect them to grow up so fast, so i'm I'm hoping I'm doing a good job as a father. And then also, I feel like I should be doing more like i I still have so much to accomplish. You know what I mean?
1: No, yeah, that's the problem. You feed them, they grow, right? Yeah. so <laughs> so but but i I always thought to myself, if I'm doing this right, then I'm creating a a, a lifelong dynamic, right? Like all three of my children now still call me to talk to me and ask advice. And what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Like there's, there's never been any breaks in, you know, like where, where our relationships have, have kind of like teetered or gone off into weird directions. I'm very close with all three of my children and it's just much better to be that way.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Um tell me about somebody who touched your heart and how they changed your life for the better.
1: Wow, so many people. Um let's keep it in the last house area, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, David Hess was uh was like the big brother I never had, right? Cuz I was the oldest. Mm-hmm. David was just the c- complex, kind, arrogant talented moronic like he was but he was somebody with whom i've had uh i had a very very close relationship for 40 some years and you know those those kind of friends you just don't you know they don't come around Yeah. you know so i i i think just personally, David, you know, there are a lot of people I've met professionally that have had influences on me. Uh, but you know, David, uh, my both wives have touched me personally, you know, um, and my children, I mean, I, I'm mar- i I I've said to all three of them who, you know, they're all grown up and two of them are married and one of them is this very successful chef and the all three of them are successful and thriving and whatever. And I look at them sometimes and I've said, you know, I don't know you guys, how you guys got, either, whether you got there because of me or in spite of me or both, you know, <laughs> and they look, they all had the same answer and said, well, it's a little of both that, you know? So yeah. I, I think the, the people who my, you know, my current wife, Patty, my former wife, Jan, my children, the, they're, and and you know uncles i had an uncle and aunt you know like my 93 year old uncle 94 year old uncle who's you know sadly on his way out in pittsburgh my uncle marvin my his wife who died a couple of years ago if it wasn't for her i don't think i could have a stable relationship with a woman you know she was she was like a jewish june cleaver right and only only ha- half ran a business and and i used to go there to her place just for a dose of normalcy, just just to, to be in a room with people who weren't, you know, yelling and screaming and, you know, acting lunaticy in front of each other. So I've been lucky again. I've had I've had nice people to show me the way.
0: Mark, you've been blessed and so lucky in so many different ways. I have to ask this question. What's the one thing that writing did for you that you didn't expect?
1: Gave me health insurance. <laughs> no it gave me a pension it gave me a career i mean just you know i i sometimes confront the fact that if i was born a person with my particular skill set if i was born in any other country i'd be just on the street i'd be homeless i'd have nothing i'd have like you know i'd have no way to do anything because i'm i'm odd in the sense that i don't you know i've never really had a job job i mean i taught it Loyal Marymount for a few years after I stopped writing, but that was, you know, part time and on, you know, not not regular. Mm-hmm. I've never really had a job where you know, like a nine to five, go to work, five days a week kind of job. So I, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the universe that you know the world I live in exists.
0: Uh, uh-huh. that kind of leads up to my next question. So, if you can go back in time and talk to your 18 year old self, uh, what would you tell him?
1: Keep doing what you're doing, man. It's gonna work out, <laughs> you know. I, yeah, I've heard that question, very vari- variations of that question before. And I look back and I say, well, you know, I don't know what I would change. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of things professionally I would change. I would, you know, there's some agent advice I ignored uh, to go another direction. I probably would if i could change that i would have changed that but you know i i would have maybe done more stand up earlier on you know when i got out here instead of just using it as a platform to you know propel myself into comedy writing but I, you know that is what it is mm-hmm. i still made a lot of good friends and had a lot of fun and
0: here's a question for you what's something you think you failed at
1: <sighs> so many things jesus Everything from, from a shitty golf swing to never winning an Emmy, never winning an Oscar. Um, I had some pro- professional things. Like, I failed at not doing stand-up more, mm-hmm. you know. I failed at um, trying to get some movies made that I never got made, you know. I've always re- realized, you know, that you can succeed by accident, but you pretty much fail for a reason. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've been able to look back and identify the reasons why this didn't work or that didn't work. And I don't blame it. You know, I don't, I don't harbor any ill feelings or, um, I don't blame anybody else. I'm never, I'm not a victim. You know, if anything I've had, you know, I've had too much fun in my life and too much success to ever, ever, ever refer to myself as, you know, an unlucky victim kind of character. So I just roll with it, man. You know, I just I, you know, I've got a few things in the in the fire. I'm happy about my book that I'm actually getting it done. You know, I have an I have a nice house in, in Indio, California. I have an apartment in Los Angeles. My time is my own. You know, so that 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 makes up for a lot of it. The fact that, you know, when you own your own time, that's the that's the greatest gift you can ever give yourself
0: is to own your own time. Finish this sentence for me. I believe. Period. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, I I,
0: I believe that
1: dreams come true.
0: Finish this next sentence for me. I am most proud of.
1: Oh, I'm most proud of my children. Yeah, that's an easy one.
0: What's the one common myth about writing you'd like to debunk right now? That it's easy.
1: (laughs) People think it's easy. My wife thinks it's easy, right? I said we were into it. She said, "Why do you, you know? Why do you have to work so hard at it?" I said, "Well, just sit down and write a five-page scene. Just, just write a three-page scene. Just, you know, tell me everything you need." Well, I can't do that. Well, of course, no, because it's fucking hard. <laughs> you no, know, it takes a lot of fucking thought. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're when you're writing a a, a screenplay or a play or TV thing you you've got all these voices in your head right you're you're constantly hearing other voices and it's not psychotic it's just your ability if you if you're diligent you and that's the way i write is i hear what people say i i kind of know the characters intrinsically right and then i know the plot point or i know the essence of a scene and i try to step away from it mark tries to step away from it and allows those people to just you know, show me what they're doing and then I'll write down what they do and say, but that's that. I think people don't understand how writing happens.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: I, yeah, like I know a lot of different writers who have a lot of different processes, but much like the golf swing, you know, at the, at the moment of impact, everybody's in the
0: same place. Wow. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's one of the truest facts I've heard about being a writer. Um, uh, I want to have a couple more questions for you, Mark. Uh, tell me a funny story about something that happened to you in the industry.
1: I was working on um, the People's Choice Awards. I was writing with Sam, and I think I think that year we were co-producing. Uh, I think we had co-producing credit. So I, I did a few of those shows with Sam, and um, one of the things we would do on show night would be Sam and I would be Kind of uh, schmoozing the talent, right? Because on those shows, you you bring together a lot of stars, right? And this, so there's always a room, like a green room, a giant green room, where everybody socializes before the show starts and in while the show's going on. So one year, I come home from uh, you know one of the prep days, and I was married to my first wife, whose <clears throat> name was Jan, and uh um she said to me who's on who's on the show this year and i i ran down the list of people and one of the names i mentioned was anthony hopkins mm-hmm. so uh um she said to me i'm going right i'm going because she's a huge she's a huge anthony hopkins fan like silence of the lambs she's a fucking nuts so she, she said uh, please please you gotta you gotta i said you'll be there don't worry so the night of the show. We had a table. Writers had a table uh, uh, right near the stage entrance, where the wings were. So we could get, we could go back and forth easily. So Jan is sitting there when her mom and stepfather were out, and we took them. And we had like ten people at the table: Sam's wife and another guest and some other. So I'm backstage in the green room, uh, talking to. Uh, I'm, at, I'm at the bar. In in the green room, and I'm talking to Steven Spielberg, uh, Carol Burnett, and Michael Douglas. All three were presenters. steven was presenting an award to Michael. Michael had to do a speech about Stephen, and yada yada yada. Right. So mm-hmm. the th- and I had I had known everyone except Michael, Stephen. I had known before because of Harry and the Hendersons, and uh, 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 Sam knew steven but Sam wasn't there. It was just me, Carol. And, and I knew Carol because, uh, because of Sam. So we're talking and off to my left, I see the, the door. Anthony Hopkins being, comes in being led by a page. And the page points to me. And I know he's pointing to me and I see Hopkins come over to me. So he comes over and uh, he sticks his hand out. He says, hello, Mark. Tony Hopkins. Tony Hopkins. Nice to meet you. Tony Hopkins. And we <laughs> shake hands. And uh, we're talking about you know what he needs to do, and uh, we went over the two lines he had to say. And we're talking, and he said, oh, "There's nothing else. I think I'll go to my dressing room." So I said, "There is one more thing." <laughs> I said, "My my wife." He said, "Very well, bring her back." I said, "How did you know that?" He said, "It's always that." <laughs> so, <laughs> so now now. I rush out to to the table and I don't want to tell her in front of everybody that you're coming back to meet Anthony Hopkins. I want to surprise her, right? So I go out to the table and I said, Hey, listen, come backstage with me. I need you for something. And she said, What? I said, I can't tell you here, but I need you to come with me. Just, just don't ask questions. Just come with me. So I come back into the room, right? And Carol had gone michael had gone and now Stephen is at the bar talking to anthony hopkins so it's crowded so she doesn't really see jan doesn't really see exactly where we're going or why until we get real close and then i feel her hand on my hand she just squeezes me real hard and i leaned over i said well you wanted to meet anthony hopkins so now hopkins is like here Jan and I come from here and Stephen is over here. So I stand, Jan and I get in between Stephen and Hopkins. And I said, Jan, Anthony Hopkins, Tony, my wife, Jan. Tony Hopkins, pleasure to meet you. Absolutely wonderful. You know, he signs like an autograph for her. And I said, okay, time to go now. And I walk her out of the door and back to the table. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and uh, I come back in the room. And Hopkins is gone from the bar, and Stephen is standing there by himself. So I go back over to where my drink was, and he looks at me and he says, What the fuck? And I said, What do you mean? And he said, What am I, chopped liver? Like, I, 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 he, I said, your wife was standing, she didn't want to meet me. I said, No, Steve, you are not chopped liver, but you are not Hannibal Lecter either. <laughs>
0: wow. Okay, and my final question of the day is this: What does the future hold for Mark Scheffler?
1: Well, let's see. Finishing my book, this movie is, uh, Smash uh, Once in Future Smash is coming. out. I only do a you know Talking Head cameo, but still, it's fun. I'd like to do some more acting. You know, I, I sort of don't. I don't pursue it, but if it comes my way, like I know enough people that if something comes my way, I would really consider it. I like doing my stand-up and I, i'm really the focus is the book that's the challenge so that you know the other stuff i've done in various forms never written a book and so it's a big challenge that that's the one i'm on now
0: mark thank you so much for being on the show before i let you go is there a way that the people listening can get in contact with you Have an uh, facebook <laughs> in- instagram
1: um twitter
0: So just a reminder for those listening in, if you haven't seen Wes Craven's first film, Last House on the Left, this is the 50th anniversary. Go rent it, check it out, go stream it. It's a great movie. It will make you think twice. Um, Mark, can you take us out? My name is Mark Scheffler, and you are listening to The Quidditas Factor. Thank you for listening to the Quidditas Factor. I'm your host, Michael J. Arbourway. Before I let you go, please check out my website at www.mikearbourway.com. That's M-I-K-E-A-R-B-O-U-E-T dot com. And you can check out my shop. There you'll see a shop called Arbour Artifacts, where I have some t-shirts for sale that will help the show, as well as my wife's Etsy store, which is called Poem Jewelry Design. And Poem actually stands for... Power of each moment so please check out that store because she sells a lot more than jewelry there and it's really cool and amazing and i'm not just saying that because i'm her husband i'm saying it because it's true and finally if you can please become a patron thank you for the people who are patrons so far thank you so much and i hope to see everyone um join if they can and please join me every tuesday for a new episode of the quid toss factor thank you for listening we'll see you next week Thanks so much for listening to The Quintetase Factor with Michael J. Arbourway. We'll catch you next time.